In some corners of the internet, it's always Friday the 13th, especially on this podcast. I am John Evans, and I am joined by Vikram Wheat Michael T. Kuchek. Tonight, we are discussing Freddy vs. Jason, the big crossover genre-busting blockbuster grudge match between the two horror icons, and uh, this one believe it or not, made the most money of any film in either franchise. It uh, was the first to break the $100 million mark worldwide in its grosses, and tonight we'll discuss whether or not it deserves that honor. So, uh, Mike, let's start with you. What's your initial reaction to this viewing of Freddy vs. Jason? Well, guys, I will have to say, I, I think that this is probably the first movie that we're discussing in which I've actually seen it with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure, John, that I saw it in a yes. theater with you. I don't know if, Vic, you were there, but I know that like one or two other you know, Howard screenwriter nerd types that we I'm, hang out with. I'm pretty uh, sure that Mike Lee, who is, uh, I'm almost certain, listening right now, um, Mike Lee was with us, I think. Yeah, it was kind of part of that crew at that time. It was oh, kind of like, you know, oh, maybe yeah. not, because I think this came out in 2003, and we didn't start really? hanging out until 2004. But I don't know. I, memory is a hazy thing. We saw it at the Arc Light. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just saying, it's like, I mean, this is the first one that I saw in Los Angeles. I saw with the people with whom I'm doing, at least one of the people with whom I'm doing this podcast, and I, I, you know, I've only seen it once. It was there in that theater. I recall like enjoying it. I, I went to go see the movie. I liked it. I left. I went out with my life. Yeah, and so I rewatched it for this podcast. And uh, I, I think it shows its age a little bit. And uh, there are some other things that I was kind of just kind of shrugging at in the theater that now I'm just kind of squinting at. I'm looking at it out of the corner of my eye. Uh, but overall, it's still... I mean, dude, if you're just going to sit down and watch a movie called Freddy vs. Jason, it's fine. You know, Vic, I so all right, I'm, I'm listening to all of this. I believe I was there because I it was opening night, right? I yes, think so. I mean, like, I think we God, saw it at the Cinerama Dome. Yes, exactly. Yes, I was there. All right. So that's good because I don't remember you guys either. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we all have such a small impression on each other. <laughs> You know, I'm so glad that we shared this seminal moment, guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Were you there, dude? <laughs> so, so, I mean, there, there is a percentage chance that the three of us actually saw this movie for the first time in the same room on the same night at the same time. And you know yeah. what's funny is that afterwards we probably talked about it. <laughs> probably. probably. Yeah. Now, that would be the best bookend for this if somehow we had recorded that conversation and we could just insert it here through the magic of editing <laughs> the magic of time travel <laughs> oh, goodness. um but i have pretty much the same reaction i recall uh, enjoying it at the time i remember very distinctly there was there was within the audience this sense of some people were rooting for freddie and some people were rooting for jason uh, and i suppose i was rooting for Freddy, but I don't have any particular reason why. Um, but it's, you know, I, watching it again, I think I liked it a little bit more than than Mike did. Uh, from a screenwriting perspective, I'm 
it's really hard to find a way to get these two characters together. And I thought they found some clever ways to, to make all of that work. And it's not particularly scary, but it has some good kills and, and some of the performances are good. And uh, they ultimate, I mean, really a movie called Freddy versus Jason comes down to the third act showdown between Freddy versus Jason. And you can, you can argue about, finally getting to see some of the kung fu that what's-his-face was supposed to have in uh, part five but at least we had i thought a good fight um tommy tommy jarvis remember he was supposed to had all those kung fu moves in right in five of right. Friday, right. but never yeah. used any of them on jason so it was nice to see jason versus bruce lee um, <laughs> well i i, I Freddy did have to have some uh, so some maneuverable game because uh, Jason is obviously you know uh, a far higher weight class in terms of strength, uh, height, size, mass. You know, so I, I mean, Freddie has got to come with uh, you know his wits, his dream abilities, uh, his strategy. Uh, you know, kind of a kung fu ish situation. You know, by 2003, it was just kind of standard practice that all characters know martial arts on some level. So <laughs> Jason also had a significant reach advantage, which, as you know, is always important in boxing and the UFC. I did find it funny. I, I had never seen this before. On the Blu-ray, they have a special feature from the time, which was sort of a mock version of one of those weigh-ins like at Caesar's Palace or something and it was Freddy versus Jason in a news conference with you know them going head to head and posturing the way fighters do and I thought that was very much in keeping with the spirit of the film and kind of the spirit of the audience's rooting interests and you know Oh, I like Freddy. Oh, I like Jason. You know, the partisans have their their dog in this fight. And that's the main appeal of the film, I think, at this point. Um, I enjoyed it, too, at the time. And I think part of it was that we were living in an era of bloodless PG-13, craptacular mainstream horror. And simply because these franchises demanded it. Uh, it was a kind of a throwback, you know, to an era of gore and sex and, you know, more exploitational um, entertainment that really wasn't in vogue in 2003. So it was a fun throwback and it, you know, it's R and it earned its R. So I walked out of the theater, you know, amused and entertained. And, and this time, you know, like I think as I look at my notes, I enjoyed the film uh, you know, intermittently, and there's things that I think are cool that I'm looking forward to discussing with you. But I think it's telling that we, you know, scheduled this podcast last week, and we ended up talking about Nightmare. And I had a whole week to watch the movie again, and I just kind of didn't, you know. And I think that part of it is that it's so it's still very mainstream, and it it it's very sort of schlocky studio cynical. You know, there's some weird elements. I think Ronnie Yu certainly, as the director, brings some weirdness to the table. But I just wasn't that eager to see it again in a way that, like, you know, if you told me at any point during this process, well, dude, you got to watch part four again or you got to watch the new blood or whatever. You know, I'm just like kind of eager to do it. And I, I wasn't in, in this week. And maybe that's because I really like the Sundance show called Rectify, which I've been binge watching. But I don't know. In any event, let's get started. So this is about 17 months after Jason X 
came out and lost a shit ton of money. And uh, this had already been in the pipeline, as we talked about with Jason X. The premise opens here. Freddie is trapped in hell, um, apparently because... You know, everyone in Springwood has forgotten about him, which has deprived him of his power. And what's he going to do? Well, apparently the way this works is if he can get someone else out of hell um, to go kill some people in Springwood, uh, that will generate fear and Freddie will be blamed for the crimes, thus restoring his power through their fear of him, even if it's actually Jason doing the deed. Yeah, I, 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 they basically take the, the conceptual idea of Candyman and yeah. just slather it onto Freddy and go, we're going to do that. And well, again, like I mentioned this last time, he killed children and he was killed by parents. So who does he go after when he's a supernatural entity? These uh, horny teenagers. Uh, well, I mean, I guess in this case, you can say that Jason goes after them. Um, sure. But- <laughs> One thing I like about this Jason, like, we, why not start with this this incarnation of Jason? Mm-hmm. So, as you discussed, he's freaking huge. I mean, this is a probably the biggest Jason we've ever seen, and I like that they got his head right for the first time in a really, really long time. I mean, it's obvious that some TLC went into this design. It's to me clearly modeled after the original Part One Boy Jason skull. You can see the same lines. And he's kind of a nice hybrid of dead and alive. Like, this is the first one where they really sort of split the difference. And Mm -hmm. it's not really apparent whether he is a zombie Jason or a living Jason. And they need that ambiguity for something they do later with him getting shot full of tranquilizers. I mean, if there there was any one thing that kind of kept pulling me out from the film, it was uh, the painfully early aughts-ish elements of of the entire thing i it's very um john one of the more interesting things i mean that they've continually brought up as we've been doing this series of podcasts that that we've been kind of mining as we've been going forward is you know due to the fact that we're kind of following the breadcrumbs of a franchise that's brought us all the way from the late 70s to the late aughts is the fact that we can kind of track where horror is as a genre from one film to the next by kind of, you know, plunging the sounds, if that makes sense. And, uh, you know, by watching Freddy versus Jason, I mean, you often mentioned that, uh, you know, sometimes it takes, you know, the town, the industry, the genre, a little bit of time to kind of find its footing as to where it is next. And like, you know, z- oh, the aughts to zero three, was that kind of weird period between uh, the 90s, between the Scream era and between the J-Horror era, you know? So it's like kind of trying to figure out. So you have a lot of films that are kind of betwixt and between. They don't kind of know exactly where they stand, where they fit, you know, in terms of the genre, in terms of the arc the audience, the history. And so we get, yeah, we have the unique situation of having like this kind of goofy, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla movie. Uh, but it's still R rated, but it's also directed by a Hong Kong extract. Like we saw a lot in the nineties, you know, there's a lot of 90s sensibility to it. Like the shitty CGI 
is a heavy factor in this film. Uh, and yet it's still kind of successful in its own way, uh, be- purely because it's not, you know, no one knew what horror was at exactly 2003, you know, and in some weird kind of way that actually works to this film's benefit. It certainly is a pastiche of influences in genres and subgenres and stylistic approaches. I mean, I, at various times, I thought it was very comic booky, you know, yes. like it, it felt during the fight, particularly at the end, yes. uh, yeah. you know, at other times it definitely feels, or even within that fight as well, there's elements of the wire work and sort of the matrix or, you know, old school Hong Kong action cinema as yeah, well. specifically, specifically that. I, I mean, I, in no other uh, Friday the 13th or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street film have we had so many characters get blown all the way across a room. <laughs> by, right. by, by and it's like, yeah, it is that kind of late 90s, you know, Hong Kong extract uh, director sensibility. And I uh, am like, even Ronnie Yu is, is kind of an interesting choice because I, I, I really liked his Bride with White Hair films, but I just despised uh, Warriors of Virtue. And uh, the one thing that I hated most about Warriors of Virtue was he has, uh, he has really uh, a love for this kind of swooshy look to action beats that he applies intermittently to Freddy vs. Jason that I hate. I hate that shit. Uh, and uh, I won't say that I despise a, uh, you know, a character blown all the way across the room if it makes sense. But, uh, you know, for instance, if uh, Jason strikes Freddy within the dream sequence and he gets blown all the way across the room and there's wire work and the Hong Kong influence and XYZ, then it kind of fits the situation. But we also have that, like, kind of applying to, like, teenagers yeah. who kind of get, like, thrown across the room and wire work and they just kind of survive like they weren't there. You know, it's like, it is that kind of, like, weird post-matrix thing going on, you know? It is. That's the. I really felt the long shadow of the Matrix across this movie, mm. uh, and I think you felt it across anything that even felt vaguely like an action film for a long time, and probably still do. The thing that I liked especially about the beginning is this feels like a return to John. You hit on this directly: a return to Jason as a character. That we have to establish that Jason was and in some way is still just a little boy who drowned in a lake. And that is the the weakness that Freddy takes advantage of in that opening scene and throughout it, whenever he's able to get Jason into this sort of dream world where he has all this control, that's the weakness that he's looking for is Jason's mother, Jason drowning. These are the tools that he uses to manipulate him. And it really is a case of Freddy being let's say more sentient than Jason where Jason is just sort of this killing machine. Freddie does have his wits and that, 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 that is what uh, he has to use if he's going to get the upper hand in this situation. Uh, but I like that. I like that Jason felt like a character more than he has uh, almost at all in the, you know, I mean, since very early in the Friday the 13th franchise. Yeah, I yeah. will jump in and I will say that I, I really enjoyed that sequence in Hell in which we, we see – and I, I found myself weirdly thinking about um, Hellraiser where like – you know, in which uh, if you die, you go to like some weird hell that's, that's made specifically for you. And in Jason's Hell, he's just eternally hacking up teenagers while his mom harangues him, you know, and, uh, and Freddy – 
takes on the guise of the mom because he's, uh, as we mentioned in the last one, he's a trickster spirit. He can take on whatever form he wants. You know, he takes on the guise of Jason's mom. And uh, uh, what was the actress's name, John? Because she Betsy Palmer? Her, yeah, Betsy mean, Palmer makes her last appearance in the no, series. No, it's, it's, not, it's not Betsy Palmer. <laughs> no. Are you sure? Ab- absolutely sure. Yeah, I am. I am. Yeah, I mean, it's an old lady. You know, it doesn't look anything like her to me. What? Dude. <laughs> IMDb this shit before you edit it. But uh, I, I'm just saying. It's like, but I mean, Freddy takes on the guise of Jason's mom, who apparently is the spirit that, that controls him. And that in, in hell, all Jason does all day is kill teenagers. I mean, it's like he's in his own weird little Valhalla of Crystal Lake. And then he gets drawn out by Freddy, and uh, he comes out of his grave. And now he's a zombie, and yet whenever Freddy or anybody else strikes him, like blood goes fountaining out in this very Hong Kong action-y kind of way. Uh, but be that as it may, I mean, that's our setup. Yeah, well, to throw a little bit of light on the development process of this film, uh, and I think it's something relevant to what you guys were getting in, into there, um, this was an era where generally the cool thing to do would be to completely reinvent the mythology and abandon the the history of the films and you know like put a cool early 2000 spin on jason you know and they did not end up going with those with that type of take like i i believe many of these infinite drafts that screenwriters were giving to them to new line were taking the concepts in these revisionist directions and finally, they basically went with the the guys that did something that felt the truest to the backstories and the histories of the principles. And say what you want about this film. It feels very much like this is the Freddy and the Jason. And you guys were kind of alluding to that, that we've seen in all of their movies. Like, it's sort of the core versions of those two characters. Yeah, dude, I will say that my favorite scene in this whole movie was the beat in which uh, Monica Kina goes into Jason's dream realm and she sees his experience as being a young boy and he's being teased by their children and they chase him into the lake and he drowns and she's shouting at it's it's clearly like a, a nightmare sequence for him because like the other camp the other camp counselors are ignoring him in like this very over like over the top right very dream slash oh, yeah they're slash. literally fucking like yeah, two yeah, of yeah. them are like leaning against the post of the of the right. veranda right. Of, yeah. of- it, it, like it's nightmare logic and well, we see that this is Jason's nightmare. And, uh, you know, between the earlier beat with his uh, Freddie posing as his mom, but I mean, it, it plays with him. I and mean, when Freddie poses his mom and says, hey, you have to go chop up teenagers, you get, he just kind of shrugs and goes, okay. Yeah, and then we get this beat. And it's like we get a, an aspect of his internal life that we haven't seen in many films. You know, and for that, I will definitely give you know, a big thumbs up to this film. And what's more in that scene, the the thing that really jumped out to me was the kids put a bag over his head. Yes. Yes. Comes off very quickly, but I thought, wow, what if, what a brilliant move again, calling back to making this feel like the real Jason 
give us a little bit of explanation for how Jason in part two wound up with the bag over his head. Uh, that was, I yeah. thought that was a great beat. And that's just for us. Like that's the, most of the kids who saw this in 2003, that beat did not mean anything. That was something they put in there just for the hardcore fans. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that was like a, a little wink and a nod, but I, I mean, at the same time also, you know, very real. It's like, I mean, yeah, there was a moment where they put a bag over his head and, you know, then they, he yanks it off and he jumps in the lake and then he drowns and no one's paying attention and then he dies. And uh, yeah, it's like we're kind of going all the way back to one and two and even five. As maligned as five is, five tried the hardest to drag this franchise back to the idea that it's a murder mystery based on psychology. As stupid and terrible as five is, it had its heart in the right place. And this, this film, Freddy vs. Jason, and we really do have to like establish the characters of Freddy and Jason. I mean, if not anything, for the younger audiences who hadn't seen all these movies up, up beforehand. You know? I want to hey. give some credit to this woman, uh, Stokely Chafin, who yes. was the executive in charge of production and who I believe you know, New Line tabbed to shepherd this project through. And I think that she was a, from what I understand from the Blu-ray and, you know, whatnot, a purist and a big fan of these original films. And I think that these decisions and this reverence for the original source material, I think that you kind of feel that emanating from her. The idea that it fits into like kind of the mythologies of the films and you would just look at it as part of the Friday the 13th franchise, I think is, is, is a credit to that. And you see with things like that bag on the head, like that is a geek gasm moment, but right. it's like a, that little shred of psychology that fleshes out that little contour of his mind and explains why he would put on that bag in the second movie. That's awesome. I mean, that's yeah. just really, really cool. Donna, I will say that I, I've I actually had multiple meetings with Stokely, and she is an extremely smart executive. Yeah, I remember her from when I was in the business, and I don't know how, like, if I ever had a meeting with her or something, but she was certainly someone that we would call. And uh, unfortunately, it looks like she might be out of the business right now if IMDb would, uh, would be accurate. Uh, she's got a company called Chick Flux, and I still kind of get echoes of them every once in a while. So, I mean, you never know. I don't know. Well, good. I hope she's still out there. That's, yeah. That would be great. So, anyway, moving on, um, let's wrap up just sort of a, you know, any thoughts about how Jason, his conception in this film. I'll add, like, to wrap up my take on it. He's got kind of like a dark gray skin and a very weathered mask, which I like. And the wisps of hair are are back, which is not my preferred look, as you know. And in this one, it, it at least seems that he has one eye again, but I'm pretty sure they're reversed. The eye that's normally gone is the one that he has in this film, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and this film is a little, it's a little off and on about that, because uh, uh, when he first comes to life, his right eye is closed and his left eye is open. And uh, But whenever we get, I, I, here's one of my with the film and it's extremely minor I realize but it's like whenever we get a close up of his eye uh, there isn't a whole lot of character to it I mean, there's no. almost like a bovine feel uh, he almost feels like uh, it, it's, it's a little he's, he's got a lot more character when he's in silhouette than when he's in close up if that makes sense 
Well, that was a lot of what Kane Hodder brought to the part. I think we talked a lot about just the, the shifting of the eyes in the opening scene of uh, Jason X. So that's there was a lot of controversy around the casting of Ken Kersinger. Yeah. Yes. Jason Voorhees. And that's yeah. look, there's a reason that Kane Hodder is so closely associated with the part. It's he has no lines. He brought something to that 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 elevated, I think, all the movies that he was in. And and Ken Kersinger does a does a fine job. John's already talked about the physicality, the size that he brings to it, <laughs> the, the intimidation. But yeah, you're going to yeah. lose something too, and I think that's what you lose. I would also like to say, uh, just for for whatever it's worth, that I actually liked the look of Freddy in this film. I think you have mm-hmm. to deal with uh, Robert England's aging at this point, mm-hmm. and uh, the makeup. It certainly doesn't look the same, but it still looks convincing and good and scary because that look of Freddy is a is a big part of what makes him a frightening character, uh, and I thought they did a nice job with it. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just kind of going into the Freddy versus Jason aspect of this film. Uh, let me just say that I mean, they did a very good, you know, again, kind of King Kong versus Godzilla, you know, a job of, you know, leading us on in terms of who would win, who would be up, who would be down, X, Y, Z. And kind of in hindsight, you know, do, you know, I, with, screen, with my screenwriter vision, you know, I can kind of see the get the game that they're playing because I'm right off the top. Uh, we open with a voiceover from Freddy in which he describes his sins and how awful he is. And like it, it, it's a statement of intention that he is the antagonist of the piece. But because it's a horror movie, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to win, you know, and that Jason is going to be his, uh, you know, he would be happy down in hell chopping up uh, uh, hallucinatory teenagers as he was uh, uh, chopping up hallucinatory teenagers on the holodeck in uh, Jason X. You know, that he's a pawn. He's a cat's paw. You know, uh, that Freddy's just using him. And eventually the the, the pawn will uh, realize that he's been being used and he will strike back. You know, and uh, eventually it's, you know, Freddy is established as a mean guy. And Jason is a dangerous guy, but he's not a evil guy, if that makes sense. He's very, and so, he's very childlike is the word that I, that I wrote down. Exactly. And that's, you know, that I, I know as we've seen multiple times in this franchise that he is uh, a child who somehow grew up into a giant, you know, psychotic backwoods weirdo who just really wants to chop you up. And in part three, guys, it's like that was a really, really – a uh, scary character. I'm talking about like, you know, that, that mad grin that he gives to the character at the very end of the film. We don't see that mad grin after four at all, ever. Yeah. You know, I, I, now he's just, a, a, he's basically a golem is what he is from that point on. And, uh, yeah, in this film, he's a childlike golem. And if there's one callback to part eight, it's when he turn, you know, when he's awash with water, and Freddy's James Hoogans, he turns into a child. My, yes. my issue with that beat was that we have seen Jason charge headlong into water over and over and over oh, again yeah. without oh, him yeah. having any sort of aquaphobia. Yeah, I get it. Like You can see how it is. That's the reinvention, I think, that, that John was talking about, that they had to give Jason a weakness 
yeah. and that weakness made sense, but it wasn't supported by anything that's come before it. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of a video game aspect to this film. It feels a little bit more like Mortal Kombat than, they, than any other film that I've seen, if that makes sense. And in this case, it's like there's a video game sensibility where each character has a strength and he's got a weakness. Like, uh, you know, Jason, you know, I mean, there's, it's almost like UFC where it's like you've got your pros and your cons on the other side of the screen. And like, Jason has size and he's got strength and he's got the machete and he's got the dinner. Yeah, but weaknesses. He's scared of water. Yeah, and then we flip over to Freddy, and, and even one of the characters is like, Jason died in water, and Freddy died in fire. That means that they're afraid of those two things. You know, it's, it's like a really, really clear-cut video game-ish, UFC-ish sensibility to this film. Yeah, these That's- things have been... I don't know that I, I see it as UFC so much as being cartoonish or comic booky. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like... Yeah, the mythologies are are pretty, you know, uh, faithful, but there's also sort of a distillation down to their essence and and you could say a dumbing down and that's kind of why Jason is so dumb in this film is that he's, you know, not a caricature of himself, but like those qualities, the basic intrinsic qualities are being emphasized on both sides, you know. We're we're very much in the archetypal nature of these two characters, and it's it's big and it's broad and it's gettable, and you don't have to have seen any of these movies to understand their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, but I, I John, like you said a little bit earlier, I mean that's both a ironically enough a strength and a weakness because I, the strength being, of course, that we get to a more core prototypical nature of who these characters are. Like you have to strip away, you know, six, seven, eight films worth of bullshit and and if you're going to just give the teenagers a film that in which they just kind of get who freddy is and who jason is then we're going to get kind of an opening sequence in in which freddy describes who he is and what his deal is and then he describes who jason is and what his deal is and we're going to go to like really basic bare bones back to yeah, before. I wonder oh. if there was a draft that someone wrote where Jason is swapping bodies, and sometimes he's the Robo Jason from Jason X, and <laughs> like, just really trying to draw from all of the Jasons, and he's like, he's got all of those powers. That would have oh. been hilarious. Oh, <laughs> That's dude. Sean Cunningham's New Friday. Oh, yeah, I, I, I would oh. love. I would I would give my left finger like I was a member of the Yakuza to write <laughs> that movie in which like you, you have to in which someone has to fight like twelve Jasons and they're all, the Jasons from every film. You know what I mean? Oh, cool. yeah. Holy fuck, dude! That would be awesome. That's great, guys. I would have. Can we go back? I mean, I know we 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 said mm-hmm. we weren't going to do a a beat by beat rehash of this, but I really liked the opening the opening scene and the opening kill in particular. Um, I loved what a spectacular douchebag Trey was. That goes right back to everything we've talked about in Friday the 13th, the, the, the evolution of characters that you wanted to see killed. And they created this guy truly in three minutes that you just went, Oh God, I can't wait to see this guy get killed. Well, actually, Vic, I don't necessarily want to neglect everything about the plot. So let's actually let me introduce the characters and then let's have that conversation. 
the meat, the, the cannon fodder, and the final girl are introduced kind of in one fell swoop here, though we will have a love interest introduced later. Our lead is Lori Campbell, and she is now living in the very house on Elm Street where Nancy was living in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And her friends are over, and there's no adult supervision. We have Kia, who's played by Kelly Rowland from uh, Destiny's Child. And we have Gib, who is played by uh, the immortal Catherine Isabel. And we have Trey, who is this incredibly obnoxious character that uh, Vic mentioned. And this guy, Blake, who doesn't seem to have uh, much of a personality. And essentially, we open with them uh, with some banter. And I think the film's victim game is on point. Because we have the three girls playing Mary Kill Fuck. And I think that it's a funny little beat. The casting is, is good. Like the way that the archetypes that these girls are representing... They're also hot, but kind of realish in their look. And the acting is solid, and they all have sort of a strong individual, uh, again, a look. <laughs> it doesn't go much deeper than that in this film. But I thought that this was like a really nice opening scene to throw the characters out and just show them having fun in a way that is fun for the audience. And we get these little touches like someone uh the the girl who smokes gib throws the her cigarette out the window and it bounces off the hockey mask outside the window on a rainy night because jason is lurking out there it's very nice and one last thing before i turn it over to you guys i think that Lori, our immediately defined final girl looks a bit like the late Brittany murphy for what it's worth. Yeah, uh, uh, Monica Kina eventually yeah. uh, went on to star in uh, my friend Phil Day's film uh, mm-hmm. uh, Left in Darkness. That's right. And, yeah, uh, and I, she's I, I best was... known for, I believe it's Undeclared, uh, this show that uh, was a Judd Apatow show with a whole bunch of people like you know Charlie Hunnam and stuff in it, which is an excellent, excellent, excellent show. And I thought that she was quite good in that. I will say that my, 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 my two early aughts uh, horror hotties were uh, Catherine Isabel and uh, mm-hmm. Erica Learson. And uh, I was delighted to have Catherine Isabel in this film. I, I remember yes. I was like, uh, I, I was delighted when she first appeared in this movie. I'm just like, aha, Catherine Thank Isabel you. is here, and thereby the film is that much better. I agree 100%. Learson is uh, Blair Witch 2, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre that's... remake. Standing. Yes. No, I agree. Mike, that's a, that's a, that's a solid list, my friend. And yes, Catherine Isabel definitely on there. And yeah, she is. I'm sure everyone listening knows who this is. American Mary Ginger Snaps. She's, yeah. she's definitely a great scream queen of our generation. Yeah. She blew me away in uh, uh, Ginger Snaps and uh, she's definitely an extremely attractive woman. And, uh, and she knocked it out of the park on American Mary. And yeah, it's, I mean, Erica Lirsa, Erica Lirsa is still uh, hanging in there. But I am waiting to see what her American Mary is going to be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. She needs to sort of have her latter day, you know, career reinvention um, right about now would be nice. So, yeah, it's funny. Let's get back to the guys. Um, They are complete dillweeds from the jump. Uh, Like you're not thinking that either of these guys is going to be around for long. Um, And the guy Trey does some cigarette shaming 
of our uh, chubby-cheeked, cherub, young version of Catherine Isabel. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's not a virgin. She, she's a bad girl. No, no, no. I said she's a chubby-cheeked cherub in, in her face, just just the way she, she's oh, so I got young. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, she's got kind of a roundish face, but it makes it that much more adorable. Now, of course, we do have a virgin because, you know, Lori is so hung up on her ex who is uh, currently institutionalized at this point in the story that she can't get it going for this other loser who's hanging around uh, the party. And, you know, so she's she's remaining loyal to her sweetheart. It's a, it's a great shot when uh, her friend, uh, let's see, Kia is trying to to talk her into hooking up with Blake and she glances over and Blake is swinging from a flask and scratching his balls. Yeah. But I, I, I just, she, yes, here is what this film does. Right. Though is uh, like the better horror films. It establishes, it establishes the characters as these kind of really broad constructs. And then later on gives them a beat of humanity. And uh, Blake, is that the character's name that we're just talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I, I, He's the perfect example in which uh, he says he shows up. He's kind of a lunk. He says dumb shit. Uh, Monica is kind of rolling her eyes uh, at the idea of hooking up with this dude. We Monica Kina here. Yeah, Lori. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, they look over at him. He's scratching his nuts and taking a swig off a flask, and we're just like, yeah, duh, ha, ha. He's just dumb dot guy, whatever. But then later on. He expresses real human sadness over the fact that this character, who was established as a complete douchebag, was his childhood best friend. And he is sad of it and has like an honest human emotional scene with his father discussing this fact, you know, and which, and again, we, we establish characters as a stereotype and then we subvert that by starting to give them human elements. And that reminds me of Paul in part two, man. Yeah. And uh, Rod in uh, Pre- uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Exactly. Now, the way that that scene plays out is more Nightmare than it is Friday, which is interesting because it's Jason <laughs> who ends up killing the dad and, and Blake. Because, like, we sort of, you know, he goes into a dream and then back out of it. And it looks like he's still in a dream because his his dad's head is precariously positioned on it on his neck but he's been decapitated and his head falls off and you're like this is very much a nightmare but no it's reality and then jason actually kills him in the real world so it's a really kind of cool hybrid of the two mo's right that's funny john because i i literally wrote opening more friday than nightmare and i think that so that that opening scene in which trey is killed uh during which it's worth pointing out stabbed repeatedly in the back and there's a this is the kind of thing only horror fans appreciate because I feel a little weird saying something like this, but after Jason stabs him a bunch of times, you see him, he's holding this beer and the beer is trembling in his hand as he, as he passes away. And I thought that was actually a really nice touch to make that, that death feel specific. Um, I didn't want to jump ahead to, I didn't want to jump ahead to Blake. I I did want to deal with this, this other character that you mentioned. So yeah, let's get back to him. What else do you have Vic about uh, Trey? What I would say, John is just that that's an interesting, it it creates an interesting juxtaposition that you have this opening scene that feels very much like Friday the 13th. These kids could be in a cabin and it would play out roughly the same way, except that 
none of them would get out alive uh, versus the second scene, which you're right, feels much more like Nightmare on Elm Street because you have this question of who's awake and who's asleep and how are things going to play out. So I just think it's a it's an interesting choice if you're going to set up the movie once we get out of the the hell sequence where we establish Freddy and Jason. You literally get a Friday the Thirteenth scene followed by a Nightmare on Elm Street scene. Yeah, I, I, and you know what's interesting is uh, when uh, uh, Trey gets folded in half. It reminded me of uh, the cop character who gets folded in half in uh, Part Six. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I thought this was a quality kill here where Jason folds this guy up in the bed, snapping his spine at a very, you know, sudden 90-degree angle. Um, it's a great coup de grace after stabbing him a zillion times. So I thought that was like a really promising start as far as the kills go. But then we have something that has never, ever happened in a Friday the 13th movie <laughs> where one person gets killed and then – the, the girl comes and finds him. I was legitimately shocked that we then cut to everyone else running out screaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jason yeah. never, ever plays it this way, this way. We are breaking from the canon where he just kills one person, everyone finds out, and takes off. <laughs> uh, again, that felt like something that would happen in the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, you know, kind of keying off of what Vic just said, that struck me as, you know, Jason, it, it's very much a Nightmare on Elm Street scene, but it's Jason Voorhees instead. And I think that that is one of this film's strengths, is it really finds those kind of hybrid beats that it actually kind of work, you know? And it's also funny that this kill occurs at the actual Nightmare on Elm Street house, and none of the kids there have any idea that this is where all of those things happen. Right. Freddy is that passe. And it's interesting, like, I don't know if there's any logic to this at all, but the film might suggest on some level that Freddy has been forgotten, but Jason has not, which, of course, is nice, you know, as a as a Jason fan, because this other cop... Again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like some of most of the cops assume that because the guy was killed in bed and it's in his house, like they know that must be Freddy Krueger. So Freddy's plan is is you know working to perfection. But there's this one cop that correctly identifies the mo as as Jason, and the fact that that Jason can come out of hell and Freddy can't would suggest that Jason retains his relevance, unless you want to say that a la Candyman, like that Freddy's real weakness other than fire is that if you don't believe in him, he has no power, whereas Jason doesn't care if you know about him or not, which I, I think now that I've talked that out is is where we're going with this. Yeah, sure. I, I, it's like, I mean, the local cops have been dealing with Freddy for a long time, so they know Freddy's M.O., da-da-da-da-da, and the one guy who's just a recent transfer is going to think a little bit outside the box because I mean mm-hmm. the local cops I and mean, the entire thing their their thing with Freddy is to keep it contained to keep the uh, the infection of Freddy contained so I mean, it's like they would go completely other way to keep anybody else knowing about Freddy so it kind of makes sense that there I mean there isn't a Freddy Fred Krueger you know uh, uh, most wanted thing you know on the FBI thing but I mean a cop who's been outside of this weird little microcosm would immediately leave the assumption that it's like, yeah, that, that crazy dude who's killed like 200 people. Yeah, it's probably him <laughs> well, <laughs> or copycat is what he says. 
the thing that I like about the way this plays out too is that when you go to the the scene with Blake next, I mean, I think if you were in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, once you got that first initial kill over with, this is when you would have a, a stretch of drama, dialogue, character development to set up all the stuff, and eventually you you'd get back to the cannon fodder. And there's something it caught me off guard to go back to Blake and immediately have another kid killed. Right. That, yeah. that felt yeah. like, like breaking from what feels like the, the system that we've set up for how these movies should play out. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is a movie that's really going on its way to get to the goods. You know, uh, I mean, Freddie's uh, monologue in the opening scene is both, uh, you know, I like it and I don't. On the one hand, I, I dig his kind of establishment of, of intention. But on the other hand, I mean, this whole movie, and we're going to get into this as we move forward, but this whole movie is kind of an exposition machine. And, yes. uh, yeah, and it's constantly throwing action beats on the screen and then explaining them. Action beating, explaining them. Action beating, explaining them. And uh, because it's it's like it's trying to hit the little buzzer to keep the teens in the audience interested. And Freddie, and Jason, and Freddie, and Jason. Oh yeah! And by the way, here's what's going on. Yeah, and it's always, always, always re-explaining itself, and it drives me in fucking insane. But it does give us some nice beats, like Vic, what you just said, where it's like uh, ordinarily when characters just kind of hang around and look sad at each other. Uh, we're just kind of killing another kid. And then we'll just kind of explain it later. Fuck it. So if you guys are done talking about Blake, uh, we can get into Will, Lori's ex-boyfriend. Yeah, let's talk about that aspect. I really want to spend some more time analyzing Blake's with respect to his father. Yeah, I, 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 I like we, left, we left some meat on the table there. <laughs> meat but, on the bone. I will say, wait a minute, before we get farther... I will say one other callback to the first Nightmare on Elm Street is uh, his dad remind me of uh, Johnny Depp's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street, the original one, mm-hmm. where he's kind of a fat suburban blowhard who, uh, you know, he, he's kind of laying down the law and he's got some rules and he's kind of bitching at his kid, but he's not wrong at the same time. What you troubled know? me as just, you know, someone getting older as all human beings do was that the timing of, of this film in relation to the original uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is such that, like, basically the teenagers from that movie are the parents in this movie. We've finally, you know, had this series persist that long that it's absolutely the generations have turned over. God, that would make such an awesome film, though. It would. You guys, I was, I was kidding. We can move on from Blake and his dad. <laughs> no, dude. That, that was okay. No, I'm just saying. It's like I, I, Blake's dad remind me exactly of Johnny Depp's dad. No, I know. I, I agree. I just want to wonder, you know, like, uh, I mean, are they close? I mean, did they build soapbox racers together? Oh, wait. No, that's it's not the 1950s. So anyway, <laughs> um, Lori's ex-boyfriend, Will, and his friend, Mark, are the last people to have um, brushed uh, up against Freddy. And they are now patients at the Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital. John, are... here's another Freddy and Jason crossover. Are you ready for this? Go In... for it. Only in Jason, uh, in five and six, 
we have characters breaking out of a psychiatric institution due to the fact that they are haunted by dreams of Jason Voorhees, particularly in, in, in the opening of Six. And in this one, we have two characters who are locked up because they are being ensconced so they're not haunted by dreams of Freddy Krueger. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, like, there are a lot of psychiatric institutions in, in Friday the 13th. I mean, we, we've dealt with that with Tommy and then with Tina the psychic. So it, it is interesting that the, the dreams had a lot to do with the way that Tommy Jarvis was tortured, tortured by, you know, what happened with, with Jason. So there's almost like an inherent crossover going there. Uh, it is an interesting coincidence. So these guys are being given, given a drug that suppresses their dreams and apparently keeps uh, Freddy away. And, you know, hearing that people are being murdered, you know, Blake and Trey, uh, Mark escapes alongside uh, Will, of course, and they return and uh, Mark meets up with uh, Lori and, you know, tells her about Freddy and in, in this sort of high school hallway scene where I think they really play up a lot of the kids' reactions of instant dread some on some instinctive level, thus feeding into Freddy's power, who it should be noted up through this point in the film is kind of like trying. He tries to kill Blake, but he can't. He's like, you know, he's waiting in the wings, hoping that eventually enough fear will uh, spread through the community so that he can become weaponized again. Yeah, and, and we know this due to the subtlety of the screenplay in which we have beats in which Freddy goes, you know, reaches his claws and he tries to stab somebody and goes, ah, I'm too weak. I must become stronger. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's some this whole movie. eye-rolling, this whole movie like cringe-inducing, just unbelievably brutal exposition. Oh yeah, and uh, I, the most interesting thing to me, uh, I, I, and this is a movie that, uh, on some level, is kind of more interesting to me on a, a, a conceptual level uh, because mm-hmm. the entire idea that you, if you have two kids who know about Fred Krueger, and the way to minimize Fred Krueger is to lock them away and not let them dream, I, I they, you treat it like a, an, uh, a virus, a contagion. Uh, kind of like the ring in a sense. Yeah. Uh, that is really interesting to me. And again, I mean, guys, we keep coming back to these elements of these films that are kind of proto J horror. They're kind of they're touching on elements of what the Grudge of the Ring would do, but not quite. They're not quite there because they don't know about them, you know. But it's like you know. But this is probably the most interesting idea of this movie, at least for me. But um, one of the more cool scenes for me, especially, is when uh, the two kids, they break out and uh, they go to the high school. And Will, who is kind of like the most obviously more rambunctious of the two, uh, he's the more 12 monkeys-ish of the two, if that makes sense. Uh, he loses his mind. And he starts like kind of just, ah, Freddy's coming to get you, blah, blah, blah. And all of the kids in that hallway fall silent to listen. And at the moment, we're trying to say that this is where the Freddy contagion spreads. 
that the guy who's infected with Ebola gets out of the lab and he gets into the high school and he coughs up his Ebola on everybody. But in a smarter movie, I was kind of hoping that we would understand that this is where all the kids realize that they've been all dreaming in the same thing. But those dreams haven't had power to kill them yet. I, I just saw, I'm sorry, I just saw one of my notes. I have to go back to Blake and his dad. Jason waited for the guy to wake up before killing him. That must be noted. He's standing right there. So Jason didn't kill the guy until he woke up from the dream. So his father and waited for him to wake up. You're right. Well, I, I, guys, I will say that, that that was the other thing that I, I, I found myself thinking about in terms of the dichotomy between these two. You know, they make it clear that Jason is water, Freddy is fire in terms of their weaknesses. But in terms of their strengths, Freddy gets you when you're asleep. Jason gets you when you're awake. And if there's any one thing that the three of us have observed in the course of this uh, franchise is that Jason is very hesitant to kill people unless they're awake to see it coming. So it kind of makes sense. I love it. I mean, like it's hilarious. Like if you think about it, they really are truly a yin and yang of serial killers. Yeah. I mean, it's weird that, I mean, uh, Jason is the sunrise killer. Uh, when the sun goes down, you know, uh, Freddie shows up and punches the clock and he's the guy who gets you while you're sleeping. Yes. Yes. So, um, again, I think it's funny that the original film was clearly shot in Southern California. Um, and now everyone thinks that Freddie is back and he is kind of, he's on, he's working on it, but it's actually this legendary serial killer from New Jersey who is murdering everyone at, at the moment. However, later on, we realize that it's an easy drive from Springwood to Camp Crystal Lakes. So. Yeah, that kind of pulled me out too. Yeah. That kind of pulled me out too. I was just like, <laughs> oh, it's like, oh yeah, we have to take Jason to his uh, uh, his home field advantage, and we're gonna drive him up to Crystal Lake. And it's like the idea of it, yeah, but it's like, yeah, right. it's about forty five minutes away. I, so I, I bought that in the same way that I buy everyone's number starts with five five five. Like <laughs> that's just movie logic, and that's okay. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So Freddie is gradually ramping up his um, activities and he, he starts uh, terrorizing Kia, who is named after a car company from Korea. Um, who knew? And uh, <laughs> he, he does this little gag where he's like, got your nose. Yeah, dude, and, I, I will say that that is probably my least favorite beat in this entire yes. fucking movie is uh, when she is first paging through that girl's magazine and it's talking about plastic surgery and gets increasingly more graphic. I, I thought that that was really smart horror. Yeah, uh, that was horror on par with, um, say, a Jacob's Ladder, if that makes sense in terms of it's subtle and it's creepy. and It's, it's, it's a callback to what we were talking about before, yeah. like last time, which is like he has the ability to tap into your insecurities and your fears and exploit that. And that suggests, you know, more to come, but there's never any real payoff. Like you would think that he would have this classic kill with her where he like, you know, slices her down to where she's, you know, this 
anorexic bloody skeleton and he's like well you made your dream wait or you know whatever right right i mean i don't like the one-liners and and this this whole thing like is the jokey kills and the bad cgi which is why i don't want to watch 90 percent of the nightmare on elm street films but it it taps into what is terrifying about him yeah, I, I, and especially this beat is. I mean, again, we we have a situation in which, and they're very frequent in this movie, in which they establish something that's kind of cool, kind of interesting, kind of creepy, and then they circumvent it with bullshit. Uh, in which you know she's paging through this magazine, and it gets increasingly weirder, and then it gets graphic, and it's creepy and it's scary, and now we have a beat in a horror movie. And then Freddy shows up, and it's bad CGI, and he sticks his claws up her nose and goes. Got your nose. And it's like, oh, so congratulations on taking something that was good and turning it stupid. Thanks, guys. Great. That was awesome. That, yeah. is, that is the playbook for the last uh, three or four Nightmare on Elm Street films. Yeah. They're, oh, they're so bad. They're so with bad. The, with the exception of New Nightmare, which probably mm-hmm. deserves its own podcast. I'm excluding that from any criticisms I have of Nightmare on Elm Street. Films. It goes without and, saying. New but Nightmare, say, uh, yeah, exists within a parentheses in this dojo, believe yes. me. Uh, but that gives way to what I think is one of the strongest scenes in maybe any of the Friday the 13th films, which is the Cornfield Rave. Yeah, I really yes. like this scene. Are we, yeah. are, we ready? are we ready to move on? I, I am ready. I just want to say one thing before we go there about the van that Will and Mark have. Let's talk about that van, dude. Yes. <laughs> so, it's got carpeted paneling, fluorescent black light fixtures. There's not a wizard on the side, but it's pretty close, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the one and only thing that that dude was missing was enchiladas. Yeah. <laughs> he was missing the ability to cook Mexican food. With then, I, I, this is the second <laughs> awesome band that we have seen in a, in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. I, I right. the only thing that we needed to do was to bring the character of Demon back, that that actor, get him in the van. Oh, dude, that would have been so awesome. But it's like <laughs> that's a pretty sweet van. You're right. That's one of the best things about this movie. They attribute the van to Mark's brother, correct? Yep. Who is who is Bobby correct. Davis? Dude, yeah. And, and we see him later on, and he's played by, for some reason, one of those character actors that I saw in Titus Christopher Titus's sitcom on Fox, and right. like locked in my head is a guy named Zach Ward. And when we see him later, now he's speaking with Freddie's voice. Yeah. But yeah. I thought, yeah, that man makes sense. There's another element that I found both kind of cool and I didn't super love about this film. And that was, uh, I think is the character Mark is the best friend of the, uh, the guy who's played by John Ritter's son. Yes. Uh, yeah. He, he's a kooky, crazy guy. And he guys would go on to play the lead in Ubu Bowl's rampage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And he is fantastic. Fantastic in that movie, and I, I, I Rampage is probably the one and only defensible Uva Bowl film. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Like, like, and and he's really strong in that movie, and he's really strong in this one too. But at the same time, Vic, I, I the character in the beat that you're talking about is one of the things that makes me roll my eyes the hardest is when he's sitting in his bedroom, 
And he pulls open a drawer and he pulls open a photo and he goes, oh, my older brother, you yeah. always awesome to me. And then we, and we, I purely to introduce the character in like the clumsiest, most fucking garbage, ham-fisted fucking screenwriter way possible. And then, oh, guess what? There he is in the bathtub and, it's, and he's talking in Freddie's voice and it's like, dude, I hate that motherfucking bullshit. Absolutely. It's terrible. And so is Will, by the way. I think he's a total cipher. For me, he's sort of a poor man's Josh Hartnett, and that's before Penny Dreadful Josh Hartnett. He's got <laughs> – and his look is also kind of – there's a dash of, like, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber. Like, it's not so much the hair as the teeth, but I'm sorry – John Ritter was, you know, awesome, but Jason Ritter, I even know a guy who's, you know, acted with this dude in, in something and he's, he wasn't impressed with him either. So I, I don't know. Sorry, Jason Ritter. I wasn't impressed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he felt like a holdover and I mean, that's, that's the other thing that this movie is kind of struggling under is the yoke of the late nineties films is I, uh, that there's the, the kind of scream crew is still kind of hanging on this. I, I mean, it's a very, it, 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 I mean, this, this is a movie that's trying to pull itself out of the muck of the 90s. So it's got a scream element. It's got a Hong Kong director element. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's, it's like two, three, four years too late. But Hollywood doesn't know, or the horror genre doesn't know what's next. So it's kind of doing this really 11th hour 90s horror movie, you know, at the same time. Absolutely. Vic, are you ready for the uh, cornfield? Anything else to talk about? I have something very important to say, and I apologize to our audience because this is a callback to something we were talking about before we began recording. I just want to point out that the actor who plays Mark, uh, Brendan Fletcher, made his first feature film appearance in a movie called Air Bud. <laughs> Damn. We 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 discussed the the heartwarming possibility of an Air Bud versus Jason movie. <laughs> I have an announcement to our audience. We've been putting a lot of thought into what our next uh season of this show will be once we're done with Friday the 13th. And I am proud to announce that the Bud films are going to be our next subject. We're going to go deep into every single one, everybody. You're going to love it. <laughs> yeah, I swear, guy, if we did podcasts <laughs> like Bud movies, we would find an audience. We would drink a lot of Bud while watching Bud. I don't think there's enough Bud in the world for me to do that podcast. And I'm talking about the <laughs> my favorite scene the first time around was this rave in a cornfield, which is actually a pretty cool set piece, I have to say. And essentially we have many of the characters here and someone we haven't talked about yet. This guy Linderman who is the geeky Jewish kid apparently at uh, their school and he's got a crush on, you know, the girls, but he's a dork. So they just kind of make fun of him, but Lori's nicer and Kia is a total bitch to him. But there's this nice little beat here where he calls her out. Like he's already been oppressed for a scene or two at this point. And he finally like gives her this sort of, you know, cutting, incisive monologue. And you can tell it kind of 
turns her on and turns her around uh, regarding him. And then the music continues because um, it's a rave and it's absolutely terrible music. It's like the worst facsimile of EDM that you'll ever uh, encounter. And <laughs> Gib, our chimney smoking hat girl, Catherine Isabel, wanders mm-hmm. off alone with a beer. And which is really funny. She's drunk and the beer is, you know, sloshing around in her out of her cup and Trey appears to her. And this is kind of like dead Trey, her ex boyfriend. Um, and it's, it's sort of the bad version of Tina from the first nightmare, the way that this plays out. And she's so dick whipped that she follows dead Trey into the cornfield. And she does kind of have a PJ souls thing going on. Um, PJ souls in Carrie thing with her hat, which I thought was, um, kind of, uh, interesting but then we realize that she passes out well she's she has passed out and that's because you know she's having a drunken dead drunk dream of of freddie which is um interesting like i don't know that we've ever seen someone passed out having a freddie nightmare before and so she's being haunted in the boiler room, and we get Freddy's big signature thing, which is pressing his face through walls. And by the way, we cut back to a passed out Gib, and her tits are so ginormous that, like Lori, by the way, they protrude visibly even when she's lying down, which is quite unusual, guys. But. It does serve as a call to a date rapist, uh, Raver Kid, who's mm-hmm. uh, covered with the little glow stick type things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was kind of like, uh, it, again, this this movie has zero subtlety. So it's like, if we want to establish a guy as Raver Kid, he's not going to have one glow stick. He's going to be covered with them. And, and not so only he, that, Ronnie Yu is going to film all of these spinning glow sticks in speed ramped fashion. Yeah, I hate that bullshit. But it's like but it is interesting. And again we're calling back to the you know inherent conservatism of horror movies in the sense that I uh, she you know and she's upset about losing her boyfriend in a mysterious murder. So she drinks too much. And that is a very human and understandable beat. But the movie punishes the fuck out of this character for that choice because she falls asleep and not only is she haunted in the dream world by Freddy, but she's haunted in the real world by a date rapist who immediately starts getting up on her shit. You know, so it's, you know, that's the thing. It's like one moment of weakness and, and we established that she smokes. So obviously she's a character in a moral gray area, you know, but I mean, she, uh, but then she drinks, you know, and so, you know, to the Miss Marms of the world, I, she gets everything that she deserves. But in this case, it's like, I mean, goddamn, dude. I mean, I've smoked. This is only one of the only films I can think of where, like, the fact that the character smokes is, like, a reason for her to die. Because, I mean, th- this is a, uh, it's, again, it's a sign of a more modern horror film in which a character is smoking a cigarette. And thereby, she, I mean, that's a sign that she has a moral gray area, you know? But it's like she has punished the fuck out of her because she smokes and she drinks. But we also get, for the second time, we get Jason. Well, I, this is 
not quite the same, but I'm going to say in quotes, saving a girl from a rape by murdering her and a rapist at the same time. Yes. But still. Yes. But this becomes the really the pivotal moment. I don't call that saving someone from rape. But I think that that's the pivotal moment between Freddy and Jason is when Jason is about to kill Gib and Jason, uh, Freddy's about to kill Gib and Jason gets to her first. And Freddy realizes that he's unleashed this unstoppable killing force that is just going to kill all the teenagers before he can. Um, at which point my wife, and I'm not making this up, said, why don't they just team up? Like, they want the same thing. Um, <laughs> right. Which seemed which seemed almost too rational for this film. But you have to create some conflict between them. This is the scene that does it. And it actually sort of works. I don't know. I liked, I liked Freddie's expression when he's just about to kill her and then she coughs up blood. Uh, and falls every I, day. I actually I love that. I absolutely love that. And there's one other beat here that I I really like. Um, prior to this, she's backing away from Freddie in the boiler room, and this is before Jason is even on the scene. And she backs right over the rail, and he seems surprised. He goes, "Oh," and that was actually funny. <laughs> but there's a scary beat right before that like the only genuinely scary beat for me up to this point in the film and maybe in the entire film when he runs his finger knives over the railing and comes at her you just know that now he's capable of killing her like there's enough fear you know (laughs) she's fucked and so there's a real tension to that that suspense it's like Okay, you know, now now Freddy is he's 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 had his evil Viagra and he's going to be able to uh consummate this. Um which I, is what, what one thing kind of <clears throat> pulled me even out of that beat though was the fact that he doesn't do the screechy thing with the knives across the the pipe ever mm. in this movie. And it's like I'm mean, coming mm. off of the original nightmare. I mean, that was kind of very core to his MO. And you keep waiting for him to do it. And when he puts his knives on the pipe, you go, oh, yeah, he's going to screech at her now. And he just kind of never does. Just kind of taps him along. And you go, and you go, do we forget about that? Did that never happen? What? That's John, a good point. John, I do want to point out, uh, God forbid not to, not to keep us from pressing forward, but I thought there there are a couple of of genuinely frightening beats in this film beyond just this. I agree that that's that there's some good stuff in the scene, but the scene early on when Lori falls asleep in the police station and she walks out, and it's you even talked in the the Nightmare on Elm Street podcast about the wind rustling all the missing children flyers, uh, and then she finds. Well, that was you, Vic. You you were talking about that. No, uh, I did. I did mention it. You did. Um, okay. Yep. All right. And uh, and then she finds the little girl who is, I believe, the little girl from the, the very opening when Freddy's explaining uh, all the children that he's killed and that sort of thing. We find that same little girl huddled in a corner and her eyes are cut out. Yeah. Uh, and she turns around and begins to talk to Lori and stuff. Uh, there's a, there's wait, a wait. Of- I even have a note. We skipped it because I, you know, I felt like we covered it last time. But she mm-hmm. goes, his name is Freddy Krueger and he loves children especially little girls. Right, 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 right. right, right, right. There are some unsettling scenes in this 
Yep. Uh, not not many, and they are probably overshadowed by some of the corniness, but uh, and they, bad CGI. I, I actually thought they did a good job with a couple of of well executed, genuinely creepy and unsettling scenes that don't just involve people being hacked to pieces. Not to sell short people being hacked to pieces because that's what's getting ready to happen when Jason emerges into this cornfield. But yes, you know yes. what's interesting is like both of these characters have been turned into supervillains. And in a very mm-hmm. comic bookish kind of way, we we have this, uh, you know, this this uh, de- deformed little boy who's chased by the bullies into the lake, and he drowns, and now he's this gigantic zombie, and he's ain't. And I want to say, in terms of top three most awesome Jason Voorhees moments, this movie gives us one of them, and I and John. Vic, you and I, uh, the three of us have talked about that moment in part six when he comes out of the camper and he stands on top of it and surrounded by flames and he's staying there and it's like, yeah, he's just awesome. It's Jason Voorhees and that's what's cool about this guy. I and believe that, that moment won a Machete Award, which is yes, a very prestigious honor. <laughs> yeah, a very close second is when he comes out of that fucking cornfield and he's on fire as Machete's yes. on fire and he throws a flaming machete and stabs through a dude, and that dude catches on fire. And they look over, and Jason's on fire too. And then he gets his fire gets put out by a slashed up keg of beer. <laughs> it's like, I right. do. All right, He's all right, like, we're getting ahead. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. I, I I just wanted to say a couple things about the actual uh, murder of Catherine Isabel and and the rapist. So I thought for a minute that the glow stick goon raping her would save her which would have been pretty amazing like she wakes up because she's being raped and then and she gets out of being killed by freddy i thought that that would have been a you know pretty surprising cool thing but no jason is activated by the sex act even if it's a non-consensual one and he kills them in a very old school characteristic fashion that old impale the two people having sex with a spear all the way through both of them trick. And he flipped Tony Goldwyn about 20 feet and Jason lives. But this guy, he launches into orbit and you've got the glow sticks <laughs> flying through the air as he flips the dude with this spear. And it's good stuff. I enjoyed it as, again, on sort of a comic book exaggerated level. And Freddy gets very bent out of shape about it, and I'm not sure why, because the virus is spreading. I mean, if he could take her, if he could kill Gib, he's going to have plenty of opportunities from here on out. I mean, there's kids passing out left and right, right just at this rave. So, um, and, and I will say that the shot that Vic mentioned where he gets the blood in his face because Jason has just killed her in the real world. It's shot upside down. So he's leaning into the locker with his claws scraping the sides of it upside down. And that is a really interesting framing. So then the high school doofuses see Jason come out and they call him a corn poke with a hockey mask. All right. And he's also 10 feet tall. And they're super short, but they are not that scared of him initially. And he turns one of their heads in a 180, which is kind of a nice effect. And then, as Mike mentioned, 
um, a half pitcher of beer and a little fire are all it takes to turn Jason into a human torch. Well, it's, and, it's actually, wait, John, wait, wait. Let, me, let me put the brakes on that. Sure. It's Everclear because, Everclear. Yes, because the, uh, the, the, the fat guy that's right. uh, establishes just a beat before that he goes, this Everclear is getting me really fucked up because that's mm-hmm. the level of subtlety we're talking about in this film. Mm-hmm. So we we understand that this this dude is apparently drinking a pitcher of Everclear straight. <laughs> that's that's his his fucking jam. And so, uh, and, but I, and John, All right. Good call. I, I, John, you and I, uh, when we're writing chill, uh, we understand that uh, doing our homework that you know alcohol gives a very flamboyant flame, but it's not very hot. You know, so it looks really cool, but it's not actually going to burn anything. Yeah, that's I mean, right. And that's also uh, how um, people who eat fire, and I've actually done this at a party many, many moons ago. Um, the reason you don't burn your throat to shit is that alcohol doesn't really, you know, it's not a hot flame. Anyway, uh, yes, the keg puts out, a sliced keg puts out Jason's fire, um, but he's still got that burning uh, machete for quite some time. Wait, and, John, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I hate to interrupt. I just want no, to point no. out that one of the things this movie did that you don't see in almost any other movie in either of these franchises, and one of the things that I thought, Ronnie, you really brought to the table is the wide shot of Jason walking through the corn toward the rave. Yeah, dude, leaving the trail of flaming corn. Leaving the trail. That was badass. It's, it's a great shot. And yeah. It's, there, are, there are no wide shots in these movies. Like, this is just not something they bring to the table. And that's something that totally comes, I think, out of Hong Kong, uh, The Matrix. Like, it's th- that movie doesn't exist. That, that shot doesn't exist before before 1997. You're, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. I, 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 I you know. And there, there are certain things that I kind of roll my eyes at and kind of grip my teeth at. But I mean, overall, it's like a, you know, bringing in the '90s aesthetic gave this movie a visual aesthetic that didn't exist. And the other in fucking uh, Jason Goes to Hell or uh, or Jason X. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say that the camera is always moving in this film. I mean, it is a dynamic camera. Yeah. I overall, I appreciated the way that he shot this film. Agreed. The fire is put out, and we finally get what we wanted in Jason Takes Manhattan, where instead of just going after a couple of people and ignoring everyone else, we have an indiscriminate hack and slash. He's just working his way through a crowd, killing everyone in reach methodically, one machete stroke at a time. That was exactly my thought, was this is exactly what I wanted out of uh, Part 8. Exactly. I remember. I remember us talking about that. Yeah, I mean, this movie, if nothing else, it really goes out of its way to give us an awesome Freddy moment and an awesome Jason moment, and in a way that movies, you know, that are specifically for them, often have not. Yeah, I mean, this movie is just like we need at least one set piece in which Jason is fucking awesome, and this movie definitely fucking delivers. And I was always a Jason guy, so yeah. that's why this was my favorite scene in the film when we saw it at the Arclight that night. Yeah, it was probably the best Jason uh, scenario in, like, five movies, Yep, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it is truly, you know, in advertising terms, it's like the hero shot. 
You know, this is where <laughs> <laughs> the product that is Jason Voorhees is showcased to full effect and love it. And we get a nice meta joke here. You know, the stoner guy says that goalie was pissed about something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, but I, I, I very recently, I mean, John, I, I, I mean, you're definitely rot wrong because I mean, very recently we had a, uh, a Mortal Kombat game come out in which uh, Jason Voorhees is a playable character. And uh, and the pitch in the advertising was, look at how awesome it would be to be Jason Voorhees, you know? And to chop up dudes that you could never chop up as Jason Voorhees for. You know, so it's like, I mean, dude, you're not wrong, man. It's a real thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will, dude. I will also point out that the uh, the stoner in that scene who looks who looks so absurdly like Jay from uh, uh, yes. Clark's Jay yes. and is yes. named Kyle Labine. He is the brother of Canadian actor Tyler Labine. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Jay, uh, not Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back from Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Correct. Among, among numerous other uh, uh, great performances. Yeah, Tyler Labine is an extremely recognizable uh, and fun character actor. He's always, yep, he brightens any material that he's in. So let's move on. I'm going to maybe skip ahead if I skip over something you guys want to talk about. No worries, we'll come back. But so Lori's dad is trying to get her to take her pills and we're back at the Elm street house. And it's clear that she's not sleeping in Nancy's room because it was the trellis in the front that Johnny Depp used to climb up to her room. She's in a side of the house room and uh, it's, it rains a lot in this version of Los Angeles or wherever the hell we are in this Springwood and I would just skip ahead to Mark in that shower dream thing where he he hears uh, steam and shower sounds coming from the closed bathroom door. And it's funny. He opens the door and there's no um, there's no shower. There's no steam. There's nothing. And we have a bathroom mirror gag, which is one of the great you know staples of horror. And it's completely telegraphed and obvious and predictable. Like he literally opens it up and when he closes it, there's Freddie in the mirror. Right. Yeah. 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 On, on top of which, that is the biggest bathroom I've ever seen. <laughs> like it's huge. It's the size of my bedroom. That's like a sitcom really bathroom. In a, it, it, it's like a bathroom in a New York set sitcom where it's like, <laughs> Look at this gigantic bathroom that we're in. Yeah. Well, and this is, guys, this is the difference between watching this movie in 2003 when it came out and watching it now. Is now that I'm like hunting for houses, I'm like, holy shit, that's a big bathroom. <laughs> the square you know, footage. Oh, exactly. Yeah. As, a, as a, you know, an early 20 something, I was not paying attention to the square footage of the, uh, the bathrooms in horror movies. But yeah, and dude, I, there's one thing that stands out about this movie, uh, above. All so many other things, and uh, it, it's the uh, leaden obviousness uh, with which it approaches its uh, exposition. I mean, this is a movie that is convinced that its target audience is teenaged and stoned and stupid, where everything has to be explained 
and re-explained and re-explained in really, really dumb, thudding, obvious ways. And, I don't uh, know if you have the note, like yeah. what is actually said, but my note for this scene is Freddie delivers some agonizingly unnecessary exposition to Mark slash the audience. Then, mm-hmm. oh, new line executives, really? <laughs> oh, no, but I, I'm saying it's like, I, I mean, there, there is, yeah, there, there's a very noty aspect to uh to the dialogue uh and and a lot of the 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 elements of this film and uh you know i mean like freddie constantly re-explains to the audience uh, along with the other characters exactly how powerful he is why he wants to get powerful he's not powerful enough to attack anybody now he is da 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 but there's one beat that that stands above all the others and that's when they're talking about the drug that keeps the characters from sleeping. And the movie wants to tell you that this is an experimental drug that keeps people from dreaming. And what happens is the characters Google the name of the drug and they open up an article and the headline of the article is experimental drug keeps you from dreaming. Yes. I remember that beat. Exactly. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, th- this is I, I if you've ever worked development this is the kind of shit that like makes you laugh and roll the fucking eyes man mm-hmm. i actually i noticed that because we're because we're getting to this this bit with the uh the cop whose name escapes me but the actor's name deputy, is deputy deputy stubbs yeah Dep- stubbs lachlan monroe is the actor's name who is Look him up on IMDb. The single hardest working actor in Hollywood. He has more credits than anyone I've ever seen. He's got a dozen things that haven't come out yet. Is he Canadian? Probably. Uh, I actually actually remember him from the dreadful movie Dead Man on Campus. He exists. Like, his character I thought was sort of interesting. Like, he was, for the first time in in one of these movies, I'm going to say for the first time without having thought about it at a time, but let's just say for the first time in one of these movies, an authority figure who buys into what the kids are are selling and right. who gets on their side and you sort of think, oh, like this is somebody that's, you know, that's actually going to help them until he is dispatched almost immediately upon literally just showing up to deliver the history of Jason Voorhees and how he thinks this is a Jason Voorhees copycat or whatever, and then helping them break it, you know, but he's just an exposition machine, which made me sad because he gives kind of an interesting performance and the character is not without some interest, but there's a lot of characters in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, mean, he's another guy who uh, is introduced as a stereotype and is given one or two more character beats and, Ordinarily, you would ordinarily see in another film, but uh, I but is just as easily dispatched. And yeah, I I, I kind of laughed out loud at that beat in which uh, he kind of shows up at their little basement clubhouse, which is so yeah. painfully obviously a set. And uh, <laughs> yes, and and Kia, who is a terrible actress by the way, uh, and, and Kia goes, uh, "Well, I guess we're fucked now, huh?" And he goes, "No, actually, I believe in you." And Rolls out his exposition, but yeah, the character doesn't last that long beyond that. And there's one line in that scene. There's one line in that scene that I like. I think it's that scene, or maybe it's when they're on their way to uh, 
the mental institution. The stoner guy casts a vote for Jason being the one that they should be worried about. And mm-hmm. he adds, what kind of a pussy goes after you in your dreams? <laughs> I will say the one line in this movie that truly made me laugh is uh, when they're in the van and they've got Jason sedated and uh, they're trying to talk Kia into giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Oh, yeah. She, she's in Maurice, and she starts to slide up yes. the, the mask, and she re- reacts with revulsion, and she's like, can anybody else do this? And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a nerdy kid. Linderman, <laughs> Linderman's like, yeah, I have asthma. Like, Sorry. I'm asthma. And Kia's just like, are you sure? And, and the guy behind the wheel turns around, and he's like, he's got asthma, Kia. <laughs> You're right. That is a fantastic beat. That is actual, honestly, smart writing, smart acting. There's another beat like that with Linderman when they need a virgin and everyone, everyone looks at Linderman and he's, he's, he's not rattled at all. He's like, what? If you pay for it, it still counts. It's great, John, about that beat that you just brought up is when then they start looking at, uh, what's place? Uh, Monica Kina. And I, uh, and then we very subtly shift into nightmare mode because the other characters stand up and they start closing in on her in like an almost like an overt way that's a little weird, but it's just believable enough that we're scared with her. I and mean, we're talking a little bit earlier, John. We're talking about beats that are like honestly creepy in this film. For me, that was creepy. I thought it was a creepy moment. Oh, when they all sort of like, you know, yeah. turn on her. Yeah, there's like, oh, well, there's a virgin, da 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 da, and they start closing in on her, and it's like, there's enough of a believability to that beat where they would get weird and go, we have to sacrifice a virgin to the volcano god, so you're it, you know? The problem for me with that scene, and John, you, you mentioned this specifically earlier, but I wrote this down, is that she has, in that scene, she has the line, because it can only come to her in a dream, that Freddy died by fire and Jason by water. How can we so use terrible. that? So I terrible. remember laughing out loud in the movie theater at just oh, yeah. what a horrible line of dialogue that was. Dude, there is some terrible fucking dialogue in this movie. There is some just terrible thudding, thudding, leaden bullshit dialogue in this film. I'm just saying, in the, like in the context of a horror movie, though, it's like uh, I'm I'm trying to think of the best example, but you know, you think of something like Darkness Falls, where they're like. The ghost has to stay in the darkness. Right. That, it's afraid of the light. Yeah. How can we I, use the light? Like, again, oh, yeah, they also, like, they somehow know what Freddie told Mark. They know oh. that Jason is somehow off the leash and this isn't to Freddie's liking. And why that is or how it's apparent to the kids, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, and I, I, that's kind of the thing. Is like, I mean, we're, if we're going to get into like bullshit de-executive type dialogue where we get these fucking notes on the screenplay where it's like, how do we know on page 78 exactly what the bad guy wants to do? And so the writer is like, okay, I guess we're going to have the character go, the bad guy wants to do this. And then the executives go, oh, okay, all right, now we know. Yeah, this is actually, in screenwriting terms, like that scenario where the executive gives the note and the writer just does in the most lame and literal way possible what the executive asked for. And this is what you get, you know, when that happens, when yeah. it's allowed all the way yeah. to production. 
Exactly. I mean, you, you see those notes. They come in on a draft. How do we know what Freddie wants to do? It's page 67. What does Freddie want? And it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll write the line where Freddie goes, I want to kill kids now. Yeah. One thing that I thought was not bad uh, was when the stoner guy, Freeberg, is confronted by the comatose patients in the ward. And what makes it work is that it's creepy how they have gauze or something taped over their eyes, and yet they're all staring at him, whispering. I thought that that was uh, one of the creepier moments uh, when I saw it in the theater. Uh, I remember seeing in the theater going, okay, this is creepy. It was good. Yeah. And then we have this bizarre scene for reasons we may never know or understand. Freddy takes the form of basically like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. And he's a burned up snake slash caterpillar in a robe. <laughs> and he drops in on Freeberg in the computer room. Who, right, dude, uh, I'll tell you exactly why that beat occurs is because they're sitting around going, a lot of our target audience are like a baked. bunch of stoner, stoner teenagers. So we have to have something. And it's like, oh, yeah, dude, well, if it's like the caterpillar from Wonderland, like smokes a hookah and blows a smoke in his face. And it's just like, what's up, dude? Whoa. It's also a nod to the more out there shit of the Nightmare sequels. I will say that. Like yeah. this is kind of that sort of allusion to the really, really, really absurdist stuff that you got late in that franchise. Uh, and it's, it's pretty silly. The effects are bad. It's, it's a, it's just a terrible yeah, scene yeah. and creates again. I mean, it's, it's just throwing all of the mythology out the window that the worm crawls inside of Freeberg. And now Freddie is possessing a waking person. Maybe that's a callback to part two a little bit, I guess. I don't know. It didn't make much sense to me, except that they had to get rid of the hypnosil and sedate Jason. And so, you know, it serves, it serves its plot purpose without making much sense. Yeah. This is where Freeberg injects Jason with a ton of tranks before Jason manages to cut him in half and then, you know, Jason goes into the dream state and he's basically being drowned by by Freddy. Uh, and the, the scene where like the water starts cascading down and Jason just like can't walk through it or around it is, is also annoying. Uh, again, as we've touched on that, you know, just suddenly saying that Jason is afraid of water. Actually, this is where they really fuck with the mythology because dude came from a goddamn lake and yeah, he spent yeah, like yeah, how yeah. many movies at the bottom of that lake, you know? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I can understand the logic that, uh, yeah. you know, he spent a lot of time at the bottom of the lake, he was drowned in the lake, da, 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 in part eight, he got turned into a little kid by rushing water, like, you know, there, there's a thought process behind it. But I mean to have just like a torrent of dream water suddenly freeze him up and have Freddy again in the most obvious thudding way go ah he is afraid of water yeah it's like mm-hmm. dude you were writing this for like I mean there are Teletubby episodes with more fucking subtext to this film but we have the direct <laughs> callback to Jason takes Manhattan where it culminates with Jason as the little boy in the swim trunks, like, you know, curled up in a fetal ball. I will say that it works way better in this film than in part eight. 
I, I, and for, part for of me, that is because he's mongoloid. And and also because I mean, he's in a dream sequence and he's shivering and we actually feel bad for him. Like yeah. uh, We're just like, oh, that poor kid. You know? well, that's what I mean. This movie makes Jason a character again. And it calls back. It is a little bit like if, if you just erased everything as part two or part three, this makes more sense as a as a plot point. And I agree. It gives you a little sympathy for Jason. And when was the last time that happened? Yeah, I, don't yeah. Know. I mean, the, the scene that you're talking about where Laurie is in the dream slash holodeck slash what happened in 1957. And, you know, we're seeing Jason being tormented and ultimately drowned and she saves him. It, it's an interesting place to put the audience. You're like, you know, we're rooting for Jason to not drown and you would be eliminate a serial killer here, you know, like if you just let Freddie win, um, then Jason would be kaput. Lori enters the dream world in order to pull Freddie out. It's a plan that's very much in keeping with Nancy's in the first film. And in the process of pulling him out of the dream, she saves Jason from drowning. Well, I think the movie's sensibilities are very much on Jason's side. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that Freddie is the bad guy in this more so than Jason. That Jason is being manipulated by Freddie, and so when we get to that final scene, uh, especially once she pulls Freddie out, we have a lot of Jason getting his ass kicked in the in the dream world where Freddie rules. Once she pulls Freddie out of the dream, and we know that Jason really has the upper hand, um, it, we're rooting for him. And it's clear that, well, at the very least, I would say it's clear that the movie is rooting for him. Um, He's the underdog. Exactly. Well, no, but I think think by that point we've established that Freddy is, let's say, a worse person. That Jason is someone who who was damaged as a child. And, you know, if only there had been somebody like Lori there to save him, like none of this would have happened. Um, Whereas Freddy was sort of born evil. And, and... I don't know. I I felt like the movie, the director, the screenwriter, like they wanted us to root for Jason in this this big final conflict. Oh yeah, certainly. Yes. But, but I, I, I at the same time, though, established that I, I without undercutting the threat that Jason represents with that cornfield scene. Well, sure. Yeah, and, and the fact that he murders a bunch of kids that uh, that other characters feel bad about. He kills Kia as well. Yeah. Yeah. And let me tell you, uh, if we're going to talk about characters, I was glad to see get destroyed. It was her. And it's like, I mean, she is fucking lame. Uh, and there, there's that moment when, uh, the idea is it's Jason Voorhees versus Kia's sassiness. Yes. And, uh, and she is terrible. In that Actually, moment. no. It's Freddie. She's making fun of his sweater, I believe. Right, 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 yeah. right. You know, first she calls him a faggot, and mm. then she's like, "Oh, uh, what's up with the butter knives? What's up with the butter knives, huh?" Like this is this like amazing fucking one-liner that's gonna blow Freddie away. But and it's it's, it's like, a nice little payoff when Freddie just very subtly just kind of like what he points or something, and she turns yeah. around and there's Jason to kill her. You know, what he gets her- the last laugh. She has yeah. this very human moment right before that with Linderman. 
Yeah. Marshall's out and he's and he's clearly dying and he just kind of says, you know, I mean, he he sort of sacrifices himself and says, look, just leave me. Um, By the way, I just want to say for the guy who's introduced as the geek, he has like three or four really cool moments. And one of them is how he dies like Steve McQueen or something, you know, like yeah. he he never shows fear or regret. He's he's tough to the very end, you know, and he doesn't want to bring her down. Like he's be- putting up a a strong front as his fucking lifeblood oozes out of him. I agree. Yeah. That's what makes it so painful that she then reverts to this yeah. cultural stereotype literally like 90 seconds later for a bad death scene, no less. Yeah, so let's th- just throw into the hopper. You know, I'm not going to give a beat by beat, but let's now talk about Jason versus Freddy because that's our show. And on this show, it's not Freddy versus Jason. It's Jason versus Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. What do you guys think of the actual battles that they have? One on Freddy's turf, and one on Jason's turf. Vic, why don't you lead off? I, I will say I really actually liked this. Uh, I think you are, you are put in a difficult position. Again, coming at it from an industry perspective, from a writing perspective. How do you get these characters together? What is the fight even like? But they have these, these dichotomies that we've talked about, that Freddy is physically smaller he's more diminutive his his knives are smaller as uh, kia points out um but within this dream world he has this godlike power to play on your fears and we haven't seen jason put to you know put through those kinds of of ringers the way that he is in this film and on a similar note uh, you know i mean there's a sense in which we've seen freddie get the beating that he gets in this a little bit from Nancy in the first nightmare on Elm street, but it's equally satisfying to see Freddie on his heels, to see Jason really tearing him apart. Um, and my favorite moment, honest to goodness. I mean, when Freddie, uh, uh, it's silly when Freddie uses the, the air tanks. Does anybody know what the, the, giant, the pros are? They propane tanks. Is that what they were cool? There? I don't know. Why? Why they are, the, according like to the, Wikipedia, they are propane tanks, and that was my assumption watching it. I thought it was cool. I don't right. know. I don't know. I don't know why they have a stack of propane. Like, it, anyways, I'll leave it alone. I'm just saying the, it's the a construction tanks. site that they're having yeah. this fight yeah. on. It's the idea that uh, uh, they are someone is engaging in the reconstruction of uh, Crystal, Lake. Uh, Crystal Lake. Yeah. I agree. I still don't see why they need a rack of propane tanks. Nevertheless, he uses the propane tanks to knock Jason back into this construction area. He launches them one by one yeah. like torpedoes. Yeah. He even says, uh, damn the torpedoes or torpedoes away or something like that. Yeah. And then he uses, he knocks over some rebar, which... which by the way, it would have been Jason great if he had said something in like a, a star trek like kirk or, or or scotty voice like you know um photon torpedoes away captain oh, <laughs> no gosh, i'm just kidding God, really? all right no no i'm, gonna, I'm, just, I'm just gonna ignore that the moment that i love is he's got jason pinned with these rebar right and he's getting ready to to push this you know temple of doom style 
uh, uh, cart, mine cart. On a, mine yeah, cart. mine cart down onto him. Which again, which is amusing, just from the pers- from our perspective, uh, that this isn't actually going to kill Jason. Like Freddy's still just doing all this in this hope that if I beat him badly enough, he will he will not come back. But Jason always comes back. But when he's trying to get it down the track, it gets stuck. And he's yes. like, oh, he says something like, oh, come on, really? And yeah. it's, it's such a great moment of Freddy. In the dream world, this never happened. But in right. the real world, like, shit gets stuck on the track and the cart doesn't go where it's supposed to. <laughs> uh, and this is ultimately what leads to Freddy's demise. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost slapstick comedy, the way that it plays out. And I kind of loved it. I agree. I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was a really nice moment. So he um, he's trying to kill Lori and Will, and Jason actually saves them, and he impales Freddy with his own severed arm using, of course, the blades of the finger knives. And then they both, you know, the combatants spent sink into Crystal Lake, and Lori and Will uh, are free to go about their business. And of course the final image of the film is Jason emerging from the lake, carrying Freddie's severed head, which had me absolutely cheering in the, in the fucking audience because like this, this is visual evidence who fucking won for me. It's King Kong dragging Godzilla out by the tail or something. Uh-huh. You know, we do end it with a close-up on Freddy's severed head and Freddy winks at the audience. So, you know, Freddy is not KO'd forever, but I still, I like that the iconography of the scene is that Jason has won. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something really cool about the fact that, uh, I mean, that fake us out a little bit where uh, uh, we have uh, Maki Kina and, her, and Jason Ritter are on the dock and for the moment, uh, we hear heavy footsteps and we see a machete and it's coming their way. And we're just like, oh, no. And then it turns out to be, oh, it is uh, Freddy carrying uh, Jason's machete. But it's like I loved the beat in which uh, they were attacking each other with each other's weapons. Uh, Jason yes. stabs an arm with Freddy's uh, finger claws through his chest. But I mean, earlier from that, I mean, Freddy is attacking Jason with uh, his machete in one hand and his claws in the other. I mean, there was something really fucking cool about that situation. Yeah, what yeah. a weird little choice to have them use each other's weapons. But you're right. I mean, there was something fun and clever about that. All right, gentlemen. Well, I think we've um, we've parsed this as much as probably can be realistically done. Uh, any final thoughts on Freddy versus Jason? Let's start with you, Vic. It's better than AVP. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> True that, I, homie. I, I, and as much as I hate to, to not go out on a high note with that, I just also want to say I saw Jason Ritter on NBC's Parenthood, and I thought he was very good in that. All right. Well, good. I, I have not seen that, so I thing on Jason Ritter for ninety minutes. I, I did say some unkind things about Jason Ritter, so uh, clearly I need to watch Parenthood. There you go. And if there is a value to this film, it's that we had a bunch of shitty Friday the Thirteenth movies up until now, and we had a bunch of shitty Nightmare on Elm Street movies up until now, and uh, this kind of 
you know, I'm not going to say it's perfect. It's got some flaws, but it really it was good enough to really kind of hit the restart button, you know, for the next age. And, uh, and especially, you know, kind of uh, established the, the commercial value of these characters again. And it also established the commercial value of, uh, of, of a genre, you know, a franchise mashup. You know, so I mean, even though we can back on Alien vs. Predator, I mean, it did give a commercially viable paradigm for restarting otherwise more demand franchises. And for that, I will definitely give a huge shout out for this movie. All right. Well, uh, that's a good point. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for its success, but it is interesting that uh, this was the end of it. I, I remember at the time people were thinking, you know, Ash versus Pinhead or, right. you know, like, where are we going to go with this? Who's mm-hmm. going to be next? And it, 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 it did not continue the franchises for either Jason or Freddy because we only have the reboot of Nightmare, which is going to be rebooted again, we just heard, and the reboot of of Friday. I mean, if this movie had not made the money that did, we wouldn't see the reboots that we've seen on either franchise in all likelihood. And, uh, and, and given True. the fact that I am both reboots were monetarily okay, creatively okay, but no one lost their minds over how awesome it was. So, I mean, we're going to see some, you know, some redos on both of them. I, 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 there, there's an, an element of let's get this right for the next generation that we wouldn't have had were it not for this gatekeeper film. Yeah, because... Yeah, because the, there is still an audience for these movies, and at least in 2003. And I agree, Mike. I think that the, there's a there's a cultural value in this um, that somebody was willing to spend 30 million on it. That it made it looks like 115 million worldwide. Um, people want to see Freddy, and people want to see Jason. Uh, you just have to you just have to get it right. You can't just crap out any movie. Uh, and put a hockey mask on on a behemoth and call it Friday the Thirteenth and think people are going to turn out. You have to do it right. Yeah, and so I, I, in that sense, this film has some deep, deep value. And it's like, I creatively, you can go, well, there's this or there's that, and that's you know, that's neither here nor there. In the sense that it's like it gives us the opportunity to finally bring the franchise to filmmakers who can maybe give us. Uh, I mean, in some cases, 30, 40 years later, you know, another good film in these franchises that they deserve. Let's hope that that is the case, because next time we will be looking at 2009's reboot of Friday the 13th. And after that, boys, we are waiting for the next reboot. So... (laughs) (laughs) See you guys guys later. Bye-bye.